Corrective Surgery, Letter to the Editor, Afghanistan Minefield. Today on The Pursuit, Chaplain David Kim. Welcome to the latest episode of The Pursuit, unfiltered conversations with faith leaders about their journey to pursue God. Thanks for listening and subscribing. I'm your host, Richard Lee. Our guest today is David Kim. David is a commander in the United States Navy and has served his country in places like Kuwait and Afghanistan, worked as a flag aide for the chief of chaplains in the Pentagon, and is deployed with Marines and Navy SEALs around the world. In addition to all of that, Dave is my brother-in-law. So we took a moment to sit down during the holidays while the kids were playing downstairs to talk about his path from the business world to the United States Navy. As your brother-in-law, I had the uh, privilege of actually officiating your wedding um, between you and my wife's sister, Susan. So yes, thank you for that. Yeah, my first question is, what piece of advice that I gave you was the most valuable to you? I distinctly remember it because we went through Prepare and Rich. Yeah. I remember you looking at our readout and just seeing red flags everywhere, right? <laughs> and But all you, all you do, said was, this encourages us to show where we need to work because everyone needs to work right. at, a, at, a, at a relationship. And we just have a lot of options to choose from as to where to work. <laughs> right. Where do you um, want to start? Where do you want to start? Where would you like to start, right? But it wasn't a discouragement on our relationship, but it was a reminder that it's going to take work. Yeah, that question was meant to be a joke, but um, you, took it, <laughs> you took it very seriously. So um. <laughs> there's, there's truth to it. So. So when you were born, where were you born? I was born in New York, in Flushing. So how did your parents end up in Flushing? My mother got there first. My mother came over to the United States on a nursing visa. She was a registered nurse, worked here for, then that was in 1970, 1970s, 1971, I believe. And uh, my dad followed her a year or two after she established herself here. Over the years after that, slowly brought every member of her family over uh, one by one, so. And what was it like growing up in Flushing in the 70s, 80s? I have a lot of fond memories of our apartment there. We were on Parsons and Roosevelt. The more people I meet from Flushing, the more I realize we all had the same pediatrician, Hyun <laughs> D. Park. But yeah, we lived right across the street from him. Uh, my dad was a cabbie, a New York cabbie. Uh, really? He owned his own medallion at the time, and so he saved up for that. Wow. So he was he uh, did that for most of our time in Flushing. So I, I distinctly remember looking out my apartment seeing his cab come out of the garage and he would kind of stick his hand out the window and wave goodbye to us and we'd wow. wave down to him. Uh, I remember walking around very gingerly because if you didn't, the, the person downstairs would bang up on the, yeah. on the ceiling <laughs> and tell us to be quiet. So. so people who know Flushing, New York now in Queens mm -hmm. think of it as sort of like Koreatown, like flush with Koreans, right. no pun intended, flush with Koreans. Mm -hmm. Was it like that when you were growing up? Was it um, Koreatown? It, I guess it was. I don't think there were as many. And we moved out of there when I was around five. So, But I don't remember like hanging out with that many Koreans okay. around where I lived. Yeah. Uh, and actually, I distinctly remember a lot of, a lot of Caucasians in, in our building. And I do remember being with other Korean families at church, but not really yeah. kind of interacting with them on a daily basis. So how did you move from Flushing to Long Island? I think, uh, you know, once my dad saved up enough, um, wanted to give us a bit more room. So we moved out and got a house that my parents still live in today in uh, Mineola, New York. But he's not driving a 
cab in Long Island anymore. Is he, he was. He really? Was, yeah. So he, so he uh, would drive into the he would city. Drive into the city. Oh. Um, and uh, eventually, uh, he was serving as a as a uh, assistant pastor at um at a at a church at first a Presbyterian church, but he was ordained in the Korean Evangelical Church in um, in America. So uh, eventually, he uh, planted his own church soon after we moved out to Long Island. But for actually, yeah, for several years, he would be commuting in to the wow. city from Long Island to drive a cab. So again, in the Korean culture, like typically the pastor's wife is around, very available, right. especially that that generation. Mm-hmm. Your mom now is working full time. Yes. And and a pastor's wife. Right. So what was that like for her? Um, She she was busy. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember that at first she was working nights. So for a lot of our, of our, my elementary school years, I remember just not seeing her around that much wow. during the day because she was sleeping. My grandmother lived with us and uh, helped take us to school and things like that. And then uh, she got up in the evening, would take care of us. And then once my dad planted the church, she still was involved with all the visitations, wow. um, all the, they call them shimbangs, all the vi- visitations in, in the evenings. So she pulled off both. And so again, someone I truly admire just being able to kind of, uh, uh, meet those expectations yeah. uh, when she had every right to to not because she was working full time. That's remarkable. Yeah, we were. I think we can say this. I don't think there's a statute of limitations, but we were left home alone <laughs> yeah. uh, as kids long before I think we were legally allowed to. We <laughs> took care of ourselves. So, what was your relationship with the church growing up as a PK, pastor's kid? So, my dad is a pastor's kid too. So, I think growing up with my grandfather as a pastor helped him to raise me in a different way. Uh, so I didn't get that much pressure from my parents mm-hmm. really to to be a certain way because I'm a pastor's kid. If anything, I got that kind of pressure from my aunts and uncles. They'd see me acting up and they said, oh, you can't do that, you're the pastor's kid, but never actually from my, from my parents. Really? The only time my dad ever brought it up, I got into a fight with a kid. Uh, this was in early high school. That That's the only time he really put his foot down and said I had to apologize to the other guy um, because I was a pastor's kid. And, that's the only time I've ever seen him really get upset about it and angry about it. That's actually probably the only time that I've really seen him like really discipline me um, was in early high school. And it was about that one thing. But other than that, I was given a lot of free reign. As you were growing up, you're in the military now. So growing up, were you interested in, in the military? Were you watching movies and learning history and things like that? Yeah, I was I was totally nerding out on stuff like that. So um, there's an old movie called Final Countdown. Okay. It's with uh, Kirk Douglas, Martin Sheen. It's it's a cheesy oh, movie yeah. um, about the USS Nimitz, a modern day aircraft carrier going back in time to the days of Pearl Harbor. It was really cheesy, but it was kind of like Top Gun is today. It's like a huge marketing, um, recruiting campaign for mm. the Navy at the time. And um, my dad had a version of it on Betamax. <laughs> so I, would, I watched the heck out of that movie. I loved it. Um, and I wanted to be in the Navy. And I actually applied to the Naval Academy and then I had my backup choice of West Point uh, because, you know, that's the Army. It's a, it's a backup. Um, but I got disqualified from all service academies, all service programs at the time because of my eyesight. So I, I'm very nearsighted. Couldn't get any kind of corrective surgery because they were all still pretty early on. Mm. They didn't know what the long-term effects of those would be. Too, my vision was too bad that even past the waiver point, it was that bad. So I was disqualified from ROTC, from any of the service academies, from everything. Wow. And I distinctly remember getting that letter, being absolutely devastated about it because I don't want this to sound arrogant, but it was the first time I was really just, a door was really shut yeah. and said, you can't do this. Right. Um, no matter how much you achieve, no matter how hard you work, it's not going to matter. There's You're not going to do. You can, nothing you can do about it. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I I applied to Penn and and 
went on a different path after that, but it was, it was a pretty hard hit. And I thought that that part of my life was behind me. Mm. So after college, you had a whole career in business, right? I was in management consulting, um, at a firm up in Boston for around five years after graduation. Okay. And I think that was all kind of a detour. Also, I think in college, uh, I definitely felt a call to ministry. Um, and I remember trying to sort that out my senior year and um, during uh, some short-term missions trips where I was talking with the short-term mission, uh, the, the missionary that we were supporting, talking about ministry. And I remember him distinctly saying that he thought that it would be good, whatever area of ministry I go into, to, to work first, uh, that I needed more time to season and mature and just to understand life. I think that was his way of saying it. I just wasn't ready for green. ministry. Too green. Yeah, you, you need more time, right? You know, that is a common refrain that I think a lot of people who are looking to go into ministry, mm -hmm. is it advice that you agree with? Yes, very much so. Um, I think in general, whether you go into ministry or not, having a certain level of humility to know that you're still very early in your life and just life experience goes such a long way in terms of really understanding what scriptures say about how we should live out our faith. And, uh, you know, even today in my current position in the chaplain court, we, we used to require now it's, uh, you know, a certain number of years of, of ministry. It used to be post-seminary because they really wanted to emphasize, we wanted you to work in life, in ministry, in other areas before you kind of dive into this. And I think just that kind of seasoning can only help you that's the advice I've always given people is just, you can never be deliberate enough. You can never go slow enough. It's, there's always more you can learn before you, you, you put yourself in a position where you're, you're trying to shepherd people. Yeah. That's good advice. How did you end up going from business into the Navy? I was in Boston uh, for 9-11. I think 9-11 uh, shook a lot of people up in terms of priorities and mm -hmm. really made people think and reflect. I was working in management consulting in the late 90s, early 2000s. So it was a really good time to be yeah. in any kind of business. Um, internet was booming and I had always intended to work just for a little bit, but just because of different promotion opportunities, different opportunities that were sent my way by my company, I stayed in there for five years. And there came a point where I realized that I never intended to be here this long. And so really made me question, well, what am I doing here? Um, do I really intend to kind of take this consulting route and, and make it to VP? And uh, and I did not, I was not as committed to it as, a, as I knew I had to be in order to succeed at that level. And, and then I was just reminded of the fact that I was called to ministry. I've heard stories of people who say, oh, I just need some seasoning of life. Mm -hmm. So they go into a career and then, yeah, I'm using this phrase, trappings of the career, right? The trappings of life sort of mm -hmm. pull them away from that calling. Mm -hmm. But five years in, how did you manage that tension between sort of staying in this affluent, lucrative type of life, but then also balancing this call to ministry? <laughs> Someone might psychoanalyze this and say, there's a reason why I said what I said in the order that I said it. Uh, but during those five years, I also experienced tremendous failures in my own personal life of living out my faith. There are points mm -hmm. where I just got caught up in a, in a certain lifestyle, still went to church for the most part, but when I spent time overseas and I was away from any kind of accountability, mm -hmm. anyone who knew me, yeah. and I basically was able to completely, almost completely reinvent myself. And it was a time in my life where I really just rebelled. I, I, I did reinvent myself. Yeah, there were just a lot of moral failings. 
And in terms of the, the lifestyle that I led, uh, whether it be uh, drinking and parties and sexual immorality or whatever, uh, all those kinds of hedonistic lifestyles, I was able to, to do without really any visibility from anyone. Yeah. And so when I came back, it was, it was a long time before I really felt comfortable coming to church. Mm. And even at that point then, being completely honest with what actually had happened and what, how far I had fallen. Yeah. And so it was a while before ministry even came into the question. It, was, it, was, it took a while before I really felt like, wait a minute, do I really understand what church is? And it was only through the, the love and commitment of my small group at my church there, mm. at High Rock Church in Boston, and specifically of uh, the pastor there who was my small group leader at the time, Peter Sung, really just investing in me and just helping draw out a lot of a lot of pain, a lot of shame mm. about what who I was and what happened to me, that I was able to really start to find healing. And then that's when 9-11 happened. And then that's when I got a lot of priorities uh, restructured. And that's when I really started considering once again, with a new understanding of of what of the power of community, of what grace really, what, right. how deep the grace Christ shown across really goes on a personal level, that I really started thinking, okay, I think I may be ready now or able now to kind of revisit that possibility. Yeah. And so then after 9-11, what was the thought process? So I was, uh, I felt like I'm not where I was supposed to be. Uh, I knew, felt, I felt like I needed to try to get back on the track to uh, to see where, what area of ministry I belong. Yeah. And I knew that, again, I got a lot of great experiences uh, at my time in Boston uh, at my company. But again, just knowing that I didn't belong there and knowing that time was short, just in life, uh, I felt like now is, I've been here long enough. I need to go back to where I felt like God had called me. And so I knew I wanted to go to seminary, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do with it mm -hmm. yet. But it was almost as if I was like, I'm wasting my time long enough. I'm just going to go and figure it out as I go along. So you decide to go into seminary, but you're not sure exactly like the path that that's going to lead, right? How, where you're going to end up. Mm -hmm. How did you end up in the in chaplaincy? <laughs> So I didn't know exactly where I wanted to go, but I knew that uh, I had a heart for cross-cultural missions. Okay. A lot of my work up until that point was with young people. So, so again, I knew kind of what I, who I liked working with, but I didn't really know if that meant a specific career field. And so I thought it was cross-cultural missions. So yeah. I, that was the default. I, I was getting to uh, that kind of track to prepare myself for that. And then that's when, when I was in seminary is when uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom kicked off and we started uh, surging troops and people into Iraq mm -hmm. uh, to overthrow Saddam Hussein. And so I do distinctly remember there was a letter to the editor. I don't even know who wrote it, but a letter to the editor that challenged us as seminarians, hey, you know, whether we support the war or not, I think it's safe to say that all of us want to support our troops. Mm. But what does that mean? Uh, supporting our troops and, you know, you see yellow ribbons everywhere. How do you support the troops? What do you yeah. actually do practically to support the troops? And the challenge was put forth, whether you support the war or not, if you support the troops, we are all seminarians in training. Why wouldn't you go and support them as chaplains? Yeah. They're going to a war that you might not agree with, but they're going. Yeah. Would you rather they go with spiritual leadership and um, a voice of the gospel to go with them or not. Mm. And we're in a position where we could actually do something about right. it. So why wouldn't you? And so that challenge was put out um, coincidentally or providentially, however you want to see it, the Navy recruiter was
was in our the courtyard right by our refectory at the. What do you mean, like that that moment? Uh, th- that week. Wow. That week. So it was a uh, it was an officer programs recruiter in his khakis, kind of having a, an information table in the courtyard. And so I saw it. I took some information. He took my information down. Uh, kind of told my story about how I tried before. I was dis- disqualified, and he encouraged me. He said, "Hey, it's it's a different standard today because of corrective surgery. Uh, it's a different core. It's a st- it's a staff core, not not a line officer war fighting core." So, so people don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. The Navy and all the uh, armed services have what they call line officers. They're the ones who take command of a company and lead them into battle or take command of a ship and, and lead them into war. And they also have staff corps, your doctors, your lawyers, your nurses, your dentists, mm-hmm. and your chaplains also. And they come in for their expertise. So their uh, pathway into becoming an officer is different. I see. Because back in the day, you weren't applying to be a chaplain, obviously. Right. I was applying I to be just be a naval officer. Makes sense. Uh, or an army officer. Again, my second choice yeah, in case. It. You're on the record, Dave. Right. Thanks. Um, but, but so this was a, a different path. And yeah. he said, it's, it's going to be different. You can't treat it the same way. A lot of the requirements overlap, but some of them don't. So yeah. check it out. And so I went through the process. I did get my eyes checked out again. Um, they, again, it was it was too bad for, for them to, to take me on unless I had a waiver. I, I, this is when I found out that it's not really about my eyesight. Uh, the reason why the Navy didn't want to take on people with too bad of, of nearsighted vision is because uh, because your eyeball is a certain shape that stretches out your retina, which is that's what causes nearsightedness. And if your retina is stretched out that badly, it increases the risk of retinal tears. And so if I got struck by something, there's an increased chance of me getting blinded, mm. which would increase my chance of collecting disability. <laughs> so it all comes down to the risk of paying disability. Some actuary. Yes. <laughs> Some bean some, counter said yeah. it is not worth the risk to take someone with that bad vision because you may have to pay in disability. So this man's eyes are too oblong. Right. Not it's, worth that's exactly it. That's what it came down to. So I, I had to go to an ophthalmologist, make sure there are no existing retinal tears and to say my retinas are really? as good as they can be. And and sure enough, after I got the uh, okay from an ophthalmologist. I got accepted into the chaplain corps in what they call the chaplain candidate program. So is it like ROTC for chaplains? It is. And so uh, the program has changed over the years. But back then I went through a four week course at in Newport, Rhode Island, got yelled at by a gunnery, Marine gunnery sergeant and went through the whole learning how to march, learning how to put on a uniform. Yeah. And then I was able to shadow a battalion chaplain with the Marine Corps. So Navy chaplains work with the Navy, the Marine Corps and the Coast Guard. And so I was able to shadow a chaplain in Camp Pendleton, which is not too far from, uh, from Fuller Seminary and spend a few weeks with him seeing what he does as a battalion chaplain. And I realized here was a setting that was cross-cultural. I mean, yes, they were American, but it was uh, the military culture is completely different (laughs) from civilian culture, right? right? And a lot of them are not from Flushing, New York. You know, they're not from Long Island. They're Marines from... God knows where, right? right? And so a different, a whole different culture. Um, I realized this is, this is all coming together, starting to make sense. Mm. You join the Navy as a chaplain. Right. Is it, I mean, is that process that easy? I mean. I, um, I spent some time at the Pentagon uh, later and we went through the process of evaluating chaplains to come on active service. So you've seen behind the curtain. Yes. And um, I will say that when we are surging troops and they need chaplains, yes, it is that easy, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
because I felt guilty. We have raised the bar to a certain extent and we've become more selective about mm -hmm. the chaplains we bring about. We need, we, we look for more ministry experience. We look for a solid education. Because at this point you didn't have any ministry experience, like full-time ministry experience. Right, none full-time. Yeah. It was all part-time. I, I worked as an associate. Um, I was an intern at uh, Pacific Crossroads Church, uh, a church out west. I uh, was an associate at Redeemer Covenant Church in South LA and it was all part-time. And the only saving grace I had at the time I did a unit of clinical pastoral education at UCLA Medical Center. So I served mm. as a hospital chaplain yeah. as part of the internship requirement for my school for to graduate from Fuller. But because of that and the the um, recommendations from, from my supervisors there, they felt like that was enough chaplain experience, ministry experience in an institutional setting for them to bring me on active duty. So how long have you been in the Navy now? Been around 12, 12 years now. Okay. And so what are some of the lessons of ministry that you've learned as a chaplain? Because it's a very specific mm -hmm. type of ministry. Right. So what would be some of the things that you've learned that you think you've learned specifically in the Navy as a chaplain? I think being a Navy chaplain has taught me that one of the, and again, I don't know if it's unique to ministry, uh, or unique to military ministry, but one thing that I learned was very valuable in this specific setting is your authenticity, your just absolute disregard for pretense and uh, just being genuine in everything, in, in the way that you approach preaching and the way that you approach uh, your counseling, because uh, you're visible, they you live life with it, especially when you're deployed, they see you on a day-to-day -day basis. They see you at your high points, they see you at your low points. Mm -hmm. You don't have the luxury of, of having good days and bad days. They see all of them. Right, because you're living with them, right? Like you're right. going to work every single day with them, mm -hmm. not like a church where you get to see them on you know Sundays. Right, right. And so not, I mean, obviously not everyone sees me all the time, but enough people, and especially if you're in a relatively confined setting, uh, definitely a certain circle of people are going to see every aspect of your life. And if you're not a man of integrity, if you're not a person of integrity, or if you're not at least upfront with your own shortcomings, it just invalidates anything else you might say from the pulpit, no matter how theologically sound it might yeah. be. So your character is very important, but the thing about the military ministry that I've encountered is it's very important, but it's also very transparent. It's also mm -hmm. very visible. Right. And so I think you're going to have a certain amount of, of vulnerability that you may not have if you encounter your church or your congregation once or twice a week. Yeah. And so just being able to to live out your faith. And again, for me, I felt like my own personal experience prepared me for that by just embracing my shortcomings. Uh, I feel like people have a hard time pointing to me as a hypocrite if I've never really claimed to be perfect and just know that I'm in the trenches with them, just wrestling through the same kinds of ethical questions they might have. I don't have all the answers, but let's figure out how to find the answers together in scripture through a, a scripture study. Let's pray through it together. Let's sit through the pain together. Um, they want me to be who I am, but also continually someone who points to God, points to Christ. Because yes, I'm there with them in the trenches, but I'm also constantly wearing a cross. I'm not anonymous. They yeah. know who I am. Right. So there's a certain expectation that comes with that that I have to embrace. Yeah. Um, and so again, as long as I don't, I don't pretend to be someone I'm not, because they'll sniff right through it. They'll see right through that too. But also looking at somebody, looking at me as somebody that will continually try to bring God into the picture, bring the divine into the picture, bring, bring the spiritual side of things into the picture, and just embracing that as part of what I do and who I am. I mean, what you're saying is that in order for them to sort of believe your message, they have to believe your character. Like they have to see your character and you can only do that by being in the same 
you said, in the trenches with them. Right. And so, I mean, there's just such a strong ministry principle mm -hmm. there for pastors who only see their congregations on Sundays. Right. You know, like I'll only believe you at the pulpit if I know that you understand who I am, what I'm going through, what my marriage is like, what my, you know, workplace is like, you know, those sorts of things. Right. And it seems like, you know, all of that is just ratcheted up mm -hmm. um, and you're forced into a situation where you're literally in the trenches with them all during the week. Right. But that gives you a foundation of ministry that is so much stronger. Right. Right. Because uh, when you say something like God is here with us and they know that you knew the person that was just killed in action, mm. that you that they know that you're feeling maybe not the same sense of loss, but definitely a sense of loss with them. Mm. But you're still somehow able to have that faith. Once they see you, under, they, they understand that you're with them. Whether they're feeling that sense of faith themselves or not, they definitely can at least find hope in that. And so I think I get some of that from my dad too, uh, and just seeing how much he invested. And again, when we were growing up, was there a little bit of resentment sometime of how many nights he spent away from us in order to invest in his in his uh, congregation, being with them in their homes, being with them in their workplaces, visiting them during yeah. the day in their workplaces. But what he was trying to do was share life with them. Right. And it takes effort if you're part of a civilian congregation to do that. It takes time and effort, but it comes a little bit more naturally in most military settings to share life sure. with them on, on more of a, a daily basis. And so for us, it just means as chaplains, just making the most of those opportunities. So I think most people don't know what a chaplain does like day to day. Like, I mean, are, it's mm -hmm. not like you're holding a rosary like behind the troops as they're advancing, <laughs> right? Like this is not the picture right. of what a chaplain does day to mm -hmm. day. So what do you do? Like what does a chaplain do? Um, I think that depends a lot on the kinds of jobs that we're assigned to. So uh, we call them billets. They're, they're our assignments. And so if you're assigned to a chapel, um, your life really does reflect that of a parish pastor. Uh, you have a congregation, you have Sunday services, you have a Bible study, you have mm. a religious program that you're trying to uh, to execute and plan and trying to do outreach and stuff like that. So uh, we have chapel assignments both in the United States as well as overseas. But uh, most of our assignments are to ships, to Marine Corps battalions, um, and to what we call operational units, units that deploy. So for those, again, it depends. If you're on a ship, it's going to look different than if you're in the Marine Corps, but there's an element of doing those Sunday services. You're there to provide for the religious needs of, of those that you're called to minister to. So a lot of that looks like sacraments, looks like um, services and Bible studies, but there's also a, a lot of pastoral counseling. And so mm -hmm. Navy chaplains have absolute confidentiality uh, with people that they talk to. Yeah. That extent, there's no mandatory reporting for anything. And so that kind of blanket confidentiality helps open up a lot of doors to sailors that uh, and Marines that may feel safe talking to the chaplain, even though it's not religious in nature. Right. And so I would say, and again, on any given day, it just depends, but uh, you know, maybe a third, a third of my time is spent in, in a, an office talking to people who are counseling and, and then some administrative things uh, to execute the, the religious programs that we're called to execute for, uh, for that particular billet. Your wife just whispered in your ear. Yes. So one aspect of what we do also is uh, there's a term we call a deck plate ministry. It's kind of executing ministry of presence, just being around, mm. being visible. So not only do they come to chaplains for pastoral counseling because of our confidentiality, but a lot of it is also because we are out there we're visible again we're sharing life with yeah. them so they they feel like there's enough familiarity enough comfort to be able to come to us when 
things go awry, when things go wrong, and they're in a time of crisis or what have you. And so a lot of our time is spent, whether it be doing training with them, um, kind of in the trenches with them when they're on watch and it's just, it sucks and they're out, you know, in the cold, but just standing there with them, just striking up conversations with them, getting to know them, um, so that you're building relationships sure. that will, that they'll be able to fall back on when, when they need counsel. Yeah. And so when I was explaining this to my time, uh, some of my, my guys when I was with Special Warfare, they were kind of nodding and understanding to like, oh, so you're like a professional bro. And uh, <laughs> that's what your wife just that's whispered. That's what my wife ear. likes to refer to my job description as is a, a professional bro. Yeah, you, you're just yeah. there to be their bro. Just exactly. That's, yeah. that's all that it uh, is reduced to. But it's like incarnational. Yes. And that's a term that we, we definitely use a lot of mm -hmm. is, is, uh, is incarnational ministry and just being there uh, literally just, again, um, uh, trying to imitate Christ in that. Um, and so it's, it's a powerful image that uh, a lot of the Christian um, chaplains will, will fall back on as, as to how they should be doing ministry and why they should be doing ministry that way. I think one of the complicating things about this must be that at least the picture in my mind of a lot of enlisted uh, soldiers are that they're very young mm -hmm. and very young in life and very young in age, but also like in terms of experience. So you got a lot of people who maybe didn't go to college or newly married um, mm -hmm. and so very young in their life. So I imagine right. a lot of your counsel is just helping them navigate life as yes. a man, as a, you know, as a father, as a husband, right. right? All of those things. Yes. Yes, definitely. So, so, um, so they're sailors and Marines to me. They're not soldiers. Soldiers are in the army. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's a, it's, a, it's a minor thing, but it is a lot of that is, is a, a lot of young people. And again, navigating life is a great way to put it even more so I would say than college ministry. Because in college, people are still kind of in a bubble. Right. A lot of them are probably dependent on, you know, parents to help them out or what have you. They're, they're focused on their studies. So they don't really start living life until they graduate college, right? right. A lot of, at least that was my personal experience. So these are, are men and women, very young men and women a lot of times. Average age is going to be in the early 20s. And they're trying to navigate having an income, having kids, having a, a marriage Some in some cases, trying to figure out work-life balance, trying to figure out saying no to drugs, all these right. different things right. about life right. and um, trying to figure out how to make it all fit together yeah. in a situation that's new, you know, peer pressure, different cliques, different, all the things that are issues in high school, there's still, it still follows them into life. Right. But uh, yeah, a lot of it is just trying to help them figure out how to be a man, how to be a woman in this day and age. And then on top of that, how to be a high-performing sailor, how to be a high-performing Marine yeah. in the midst of what the uh, the service expects of them as well. But your job as a chaplain has also taken you overseas, right? Deployment. Right. Um, and you've deployed to, you know, active zones. Right. So um, I, I deployed with my very first unit was with a construction battalion with CBs, and they they're the ones that kind of build bases um, uh, at forward locations for Marines or for uh, special warfare or for other people. So I deployed with them to East Africa, Kuwait, Afghanistan, and um, we have a base in southern Spain and Rota. Uh, I deployed to Afghanistan with the Marine Corps with 1st Battalion, 5th Marines, and that was a combat deployment as well. And then um, I deployed a couple of times to East Africa with special warfare. So it was... It, definitely that's when I feel the most like a pastor, surprisingly, because it's when I'm deployed where I have the most regular service schedule. That's when I, you know, if you're here doing training, you encourage your sailors and Marines to get involved in local churches, um, get involved with the local community, especially if they have families. I definitely encourage my own 
a wife, Susan, to always be plugged into a church that would take care of her spiritually as well as with other needs while, as I was gone. Mm-hmm. And so for me as a chaplain, I was able to actually do my job as a religious ministries professional most when I'm overseas. Yeah. And so, uh, and that's why the Navy employs us primarily is to re- meet those religious needs for sailors and Marines who are away from home. So uh, I definitely embraced the opportunities to deploy and actually do my job in those settings. Yeah. As you've been deployed overseas, as you've seen, you know, gnarly stuff, right? In these mm-hmm. combat zones. How has your faith gotten you through those times as you've sort of struggled through those things and and seen those, not only just helping others, you know, I'm sure you're seeing stuff that you have questions about and that you're working through in your faith. Mm -hmm. What has been a comfort to you during those times? One thing I learned, I've learned many things during my uh, internship at UCLA as a hospital chaplain, Mm -hmm. but one thing I was really challenged to do through all the different didactics, the different sessions that we had together, it was an interfaith setting. And so it was challenging to be a Christian pastor, a Christian chaplain in a, in a secular setting, a secular institution serving a whole range of different faiths, right? And one thing I learned from my time there was not having all the answers is not a bad thing. Mm. It can actually be a source of comfort uh, because if I have all the answers and I, I don't know, then all of a sudden my worldview starts slowly crumbling away. Right. Uh, but one thing that uh, that CP unit really helped me do was build a lot more flexibility into my worldview, into my theological worldview, uh, and to know that not only asking questions was good, it was part of just being a human being as a son of God, a son, of, uh, a child of God. But there is comfort in knowing that I don't have to know everything in order to find comfort in Christ mm-hmm. and to find comfort in the divine. And that the unknown and the mystery of things is actually one of the most comforting things to me. And so that's what I carried with me into different uh, combat situations where I was experiencing loss. I was experiencing, you know, uh, theodicy questions. How can a good God let these bad things happen? Right. right. Um, and walking through it with these Marines and not coming up with quest- with answers to those questions right away. There's a there's an answer you can come up through Ravi Zacharias or through any of these apologetics right. books. That's not what matters. It's, it's being okay asking those questions. It's being okay being angry with God. Yeah. It's being okay not knowing and, and knowing that you're part of a long tradition of people who don't understand what is going on, but still directing those laments, still directing those frustrations to God and yeah. doing it together as a community. And it also taught me the importance of the role my family takes mm-hmm. and the role my uh, my other fellow pastors will take in my own development. I, I'm there as a, as a spiritual leader, as a, as a shepherd to these Marines and to these um, to special warfare sailors or what have you. But I find my strength, I was drawing my strength, especially during that Afghanistan deployment with Marines is when my son was born. And in the midst of um, the fear I mean, these guys were literally patrolling through minefields uh, and um, it was scary stuff. And losing Marine after Marine or, and cor- Corman to injury or maiming, it, was, yeah. it takes its toll. You're seeing death, you're seeing just hopelessness in a lot of ways, because we weren't the first ones there. If you know your history, yeah. the Russians were there, the British were there. It just seems like nothing's gonna get better. Yeah. But then seeing, I remember my, my wife would send me letters and those would be plastered all over yeah. my mud hut that I was I was living in at the time. Um, my computer was able to, I was fortunate to have a computer and I was able to play like little recordings that she sent of, of my son, yeah. who was, you know, just a few months old at the time, just doing just simple things like eating and stuffing his face and making a mess. And 
and laughing at baby Einstein. Mm. Um, and just those signs of life and things that were good mm. in the midst of such darkness and chaos, those were the things that kind of pulled me through. Right. And those are the things that I would share uh, with, with others uh, to, to kind of maintain those lifelines with right. people they loved at home, but also to, to check in with each other. Yeah. Uh, I had a regimental chaplain that visited me at times and there were times where I, I, I vented my frustration to him. There were, I remember distinctly there was a time that we were losing people and it was with our scout sniper platoon who I got close to. They, mm -hmm. they kind of really took me under their wing. They, had, they loved messing with me. And so, um, but we were losing people in that particular platoon. And there was a point at which I was frustrated and I was telling my regimental chaplain at the time, I don't, I, I don't wanna spend more time with these guys because the more I get to know them, the closer I become to them, the harder it becomes when, when I start losing them. Mm. And I don't know if I could maintain my composure if I keep getting close to them and they keep, yeah. they keep dying. And I asked them, what, what should I do? Yeah. Like, should I, I feel like this is not a sustainable course of action. And he didn't give me a single bit of advice. He just sat there with me with those questions and helped me navigate how I was feeling about him, that I was doing a great job with the way I was doing it. Right. And encouraging me that whatever path I choose, if I keep going at it with the same amount of, of passion and, um, and faith that he would be there with me to, to help me navigate it. But he was not directive. He was just there, sitting there with me through those questions, through that anger, through that frustration. Yeah, he was your chaplain. He was my chaplain, exactly. Yeah. And so he was exemplifying what the rabbi that was my supervisor at my time at UCLA, uh, Micah Hyman, I still remember his name. He, he told me that we went back to the book of Job and he said the best thing that the friends ever did from a pastoral counseling point of view was to sit with Job in his pain. Mm. The problems all started when they started talking, yeah. right? And so when they sat with him in his misery is when they were the most effective. And that's what that chaplain, David Todd, did for me. And it just taught me just the power of that companionship. And that's that's been the kind of a model of ministry for me. Uh, it had been up until that point, but even more so when I experienced just the power of it is when I really embraced it going forward. How have you navigated your place as a minority American, Korean American, in the Navy as a chaplain, you know, representing the, the United States of America, which some minorities would say don't look like you? How has that process been for you? Has that been a challenge? I think it helped that I grew up in a pretty, not, I guess not, not incredibly diverse, but I was definitely the only Asian guy in my school for a long time, mm. right? Uh, it was mainly uh, Caucasian, a uh, big Jewish population, but not that many Asians. Uh, now it's a different story. Back then it was not. So I, it's, I had a hard time kind of really embracing my minority identity until college. So being in a predominantly Caucasian setting just came naturally to me. It was uh, not something that my minority identity is not really something that I drew attention to, but it, it comes up. It's just subtle. It comes up when um, the Navy does a big, makes a big deal about celebrating like African-American Heritage Month, mm -hmm. Asian-American Heritage Month, Hispanic Heritage Month, um, these things. And it starts ruffling some feathers the wrong way. It starts ruffling some feathers when people who are frustrated with that are like, why would we have to continually celebrate these different right. uh, ethnicities, these different minorities? And that's, I mean, that's the kind of subtle uh, racism that, that we see right. um, of, 
hey, we're all American. We all bleed red, white, and blue. Right. And for people not being able to see, that just means that we bleed white. That's what you're trying to say. We're all fine as minorities as long as we conform mm. to the majority, right. right? And there's an element of truth in that where, hey, when it comes down to the mission, I've seen people embrace different uh, ethnicities just because they just don't care, right? Right. You're, it's all about the value that you bring to your fire team, the value that you bring uh, to your watch, to to, to your role in the ship, uh, to your damage control team, whatever. Just pull your weight, right? And so in a lot of ways, I see a lot of egalitarian values. Mm -hmm. But when you start digging deeper into those relationships, when you start digging deeper into those views, when you see people off duty, when you see people in birthing, when you, they kind of joke around, uh, there's definitely an element of, of racism there that's just as probably just a byproduct of how they grew up and yeah. where they came from. Um, so for me, it's it's been a matter of just choosing my battles and trying to make a difference uh, in, in the right time and setting and with the right relationships, as opposed to constantly beating a drum that may get, you know, it may just be ignored after a while if it just becomes more banal. Um, but it's it's through selected relationships. Uh, actually, just last week, a friend of mine, fellow chaplain, was sharing what he was confiding in me about a decision he had to make and the potential ramifications it might have on perceptions of him uh, in terms of race. Mm. And he was asking for my opinion on it. And he's senior to me. And so I was touched by that and I was, I gave him my opinion and he, he shared with me, the reason why I'm asking you is, is because at one point when we were serving together at the Pentagon, you came up to me and you said something that I said was offensive to you mm -hmm. and you explained why. And I had never thought about what I was saying from your perspective right. and I was never approached about it. And it really just floored me. And I was really just humbled by that, honored by that. And yeah. and uh, that's why I really value your opinion. And it's really just changed my the way that I kind of see how I see things and how it's perceived. Um, but I, I make it a very, very consistent message of reconciliation and hope as part of the gospel message. Mm -hmm. Whether it be reconciliation between racial divide, reconciliation between different classes. I mean, it's, it's one thing to talk about you know, valuing different ethnicities and seeing us all as people of value and trying to break down racial barriers. But to me, focusing on when I was deployed, especially the problem that I was facing was a constant dehumanization of the enemy because it was easier to kill them if they weren't human, if they were demons, if they right. were, and, and trying to preach on and teach on the value of human life and our place as sinners in, that are recipients of grace that are no better inherently than those on the other side of the line, but that are just recipients of grace. Yeah. That is a much harder message to preach and that one that was much more relevant to what we were going through at the time um, than, than other things that might have been more on the forefront to, to churches back at home. So in, in some ways it's a different setting and uh, with different priorities. And so I tried to tailor the, the gospel message to, to what's important to my congregation at the time. What would you say to someone who is thinking about a career in ministry and like where you were taking steps towards entering a vocational ministry profession, but not necessarily knowing where that would end up? What would you say to someone who is sort of having an open-ended career path? What would you say to them about the chaplain corps? Would you say do it, consider it, or would you say don't do it? I would say consider it. The reason why I don't say do it is because not everyone is wired for it. Yeah. You know, I think it takes a certain amount of flexibility, a certain amount of comfort with an interfaith setting. Um, you know, we're never going to be asked to do something that compromises our faith. So one of the, the myths is that we have to be all things for all people. That's right. not true. I'm not called to be a priest for Catholics. I'm just called to try to provide for those needs by 
calling in a priest or calling in a, a rabbi when I need to. So you can definitely, you, you are expected to be consistent in your faith and what you what you stand for, but also respectful of everyone else. So there's certain people who are just have trouble doing that. But one thing that I've learned is being flexible. You know, there's a an adage that gets, that gets thrown around, uh, semper gumby, semper always. <laughs> Gumby is flexible, like always be flexible. It's, it's, uh, I've seen it in a lot of settings for excuses for bad leadership. Right. It's just be flexible, you know. We might leave today, we might leave tomorrow, just yeah. semper Gumby, right? But in terms of what you expect in life, I mean, God has such a, such a big perspective that compared to ours, be flexible with what you feel like you're called to do. Again, I felt like I was called to cross-cultural missions. I thought that would be in Africa. And I ended up in Africa, just right. in a diff completely different setting than what I was expecting. Uh, but just letting God work out what he will in your life and just being flexible with it. So consider it. It's scary to a lot of people. A lot of, I know a lot of friends who say, I'm gonna go Air Force because it's the easiest of my life, you know? And I would say, that's great, but leave yourself open. Yeah. You don't know what, what you're passing up on. And so I would definitely say it is such a rewarding ministry. Uh, I know there are people, uh, again, I have colleagues in the, in the Covenant Church where I'm ordained that you know go through church life and it can be a grind. And there are times when it's a grind for me too, but just being able to make a difference almost on a daily basis with young people uh, that are that are looking to you. And this is, this is an incredible amount of job satisfaction that comes from it. And just being able to to live out the gospel in your mistakes even, uh, and just being able to embrace that. It is a fantastic ministry. And I'm so blessed and so happy that I'm able to, to be in it, to share with my wife and you know, our families uh, getting investing in other families. It's it's been such a blessing, and it's taking us it's taking us to Japan next. It's really opening up so many different options for us, and it's something that I, I would wish on anyone in ministry. I would just say consider it, be flexible, be open to it, because it is a great, great line of work uh, if God calls you to it. So your grandfather was a pastor. Mm -hmm. Dad's a pastor. Right. You're a chaplain. Mm -hmm. What do you hope for your son? Um, chart his own path. <laughs> what a, be open, open and flexible yeah. to whatever God has for him. Yeah, it's he. He feels like he he knows what he wants. Uh, but again, my my own testimony is is one of a ton of different detours that you know just yeah. made me end up kind of where I thought I would be, but following a completely different path and a path that has enriched and uh, helped me mature in a way that I just never would have if I had gone the way that I thought I would have. Which included a a closed door in your face, right, to the dream that you had. Yeah, which. Many years later, you're fulfilling, right. but just not in the way that you had envisioned. And with then, a with vision that was corrected <laughs> by LASIK <laughs> via Naval Hospital Camp Pendleton. So yeah, no, it was, it was, it's, it is just funny the way things worked out. But uh, again, it's just seeing what God has and and just having faith in what God has in store for us, uh, knowing that what we see and what we understand is just such a small part of the picture and trusting in, in, in a God who just doesn't have the limits that we do, but does have so much more love for us than we do for him, so. Dave always wanted to serve in the Navy from when he was a kid, but that dream was taken from him and he had to figure out another path. And many, many, Many years later, after college, after a career, after entering seminary, God finally opened the door that Dave had shut so many years ago. And this time, it wasn't the dream that Dave wanted, it was better. Sometimes the best dreams are the ones that we can't even see. 
Well, usually at this point, I put the social media handles of my guests, but Dave doesn't really have a good social media presence. So instead, you should follow at Susan Bang Photo on Instagram. That's the link to uh, his wife Susan's account. She's a very talented photographer, and she will be very happy that I plugged her account, though she'd never admit it. Thanks to all of our new listeners. Don't forget to go and listen to all of the other episodes. And don't forget to tell your friends to listen to the show. You can find us on social at The Pursuit Cast. If you like the show, let me know. Now, as we go, remember, you may not know where your journey ends, but you can find God all along the way. Thank you to my wife for reminding me that I'm a professional bro.